Today on the Show Means Shoot podcast, Dr. Susan Pendergrass is joined by Michael Podgurski and David Rose. Michael Podgurski is a professor of economics at the University of Missouri-Columbia, a senior advisor on urban education and economic development at St. Louis University, and sits on the board of directors of the Show Me Institute. David Rose is a professor of economics at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. They discuss the current state of social trust in America and David's new book, Why Culture Matters Most. For more Show Me Institute podcasts, visit showmeinstitute.org. Here's Dr. Susan Pendergrass. So I actually think that this is a very important podcast. It's important for me, so I hope it's important for other people. But given the events of the last couple of weeks, I think people are looking, I know I am, for ways to process and understand what's going on in our country right now and the level of anger. And I'm talking to Professor David Rose from the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And you have got uh, what I think is a very thoughtful and interesting perspective on Right. You had an op-ed recently, sort of how we got to where we are between our political parties. So if you could, for me, sort of connect the dots between how our culture has maybe created the situation or how we could use culture to um, sort of fix the situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience. In my book, I work out the argument that is basically the core of what's in that op-ed in, in much greater detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But the uh, long story short on what the essential message is of the op-ed is this. Uh, when a society has a democracy, which has all kinds of benefits, democracy is wonderful. Democracy gives us a way to check the power of the powerful. We can throw them out if they if they abuse our liberties, if they, if they take advantage of us in various ways. So, I, I don't think you can have a really free society for very long without democracy. Uh, there are many people, by the way, who are very thoughtful, pro-free market kind of people who are kind of dubious about democracy on the libertarian side. Uh, it's not a huge number, but it's more than a few. Sure. Uh, I'm not one of those. I, I, okay. I do think we need democracy. Uh, the problem is democracy is hard. Democracy is very, very hard work because it's very dependent on a number of institutions, some of which are very, very obvious, like being able to have elections and have people generally accept the outcome. That's a difficult thing. Most societies have not been able to do that. We have, uh, and but that's hard work and it requires certain kinds of institutions. These institutions are, require a great deal of trust by everybody in the story. Not so long ago, it was uh, unfathomable that people would really seriously worry about somebody who is on the other side of the political aisle working in uh, an election booth cheating. That, that, that just was not something people spent much time worrying about. So uh, I would say that the institution of voting, the way we vote, is very, very trust-dependent. Okay, well, then the question is, okay, how do you have a high-trust society? And the answer is, in my book, Uh, I show that the only way to have a high trust society is by having a particular kind of culture that works in a particular kind of way by having particular kinds of moral beliefs. Um, Do you feel like we have this now? Do you feel like we have this trust in our democracy and in our free and fair elections? I think we are in the process. um, Economists and statisticians like to talk about 
probability distributions. And I think if you think of political preferences, uh, typically uh, political preferences are shaped like a bell curve. It's kind of like a core area of views that everybody pretty much agrees on. And then right. the extreme right and extreme left are way out the tails. There's not that many people in the extreme right or extreme left. Most people are kind of in the middle. Most people are not terribly political. I think that what is going on right now is we are in a process whereby um, the bell shape is flattening out. Uh, so we don't have just a few people in the tails. And I think we're now going what statisticians would call bimodal, meaning there's two peaks. And so we're emptying out of the middle. The ordinary people of society who are, I mean, they may have voted Democratic their whole life or they may have voted Republican their whole life, but they're truthfully really not that political. They don't think a lot about politics. They don't get really bent out of shape over it. That group of people is starting to empty out. Mm. And we're starting to be forced to choose sides. That's a very unpleasant place to be. And it's mm -hmm. a very unstable place to be. Well, I did a podcast recently with another econ professor from Mizzou, Jeff Milo. And he basically said that it's not, I know you talk a lot about trust and trust in institutions, but he said, it's not the worst thing if trust in government goes down because when trust in government goes up, people look to government to solve their problems. And as, as, mo as I assume you would agree with me, government doesn't do a great job of solving very many problems. If the private sector can solve them, then they should. But, you know, in terms of trust in government, and also I think it's really interesting what you say about our party system becoming bimodal because it seems to me that if you look at people on our, in either one of those humps of this distribution curve now, the Venn diagram, Venn diagram of like the worlds they occupy, their worldview, the content they consume almost don't even overlap anymore. It's like you can have one complete description of the world that complete that is absolutely polar opposite of this description of the world. And so I think that's problematic too. But as you mentioned, we're also joined by Dr. Mike Podgurski from University of Missouri. And um, you and I were talking about this a little bit, Mike, in terms of the why culture matters most and why this is so like important for right now, the distillation that Dave provides in his op-ed, right? Like it's something that we really need to be thinking about. Well, I, I have a question for Dave because I your your book is very interesting, and actually your 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 op-ed was right on point. Uh, the book is much more complicated and and takes has a lot more in it, obviously. But you talk about you put this in the con larger context of the economy as well. And if I understand your argument right, we need this trust for flourishing, you, you, you talk about flourishing uh, economies uh, or human flourishing. And I, when I finished your book, I was thinking, and your op-ed, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe trust in government has gone down, but I'm struck at how much trust there is in the market economy. I mean, people, you know, I, I'm always shocked. I mean, uh, I would have never growing up bought a used car um, without getting in it and driving it and checking it out and so on. But when now we have this Carvana. <laughs> we have all this, these transactions that go on with complete strangers about stuff uh, that uh, you know, we wouldn't have thought about before. We, we, we trust them in, in some manner to, to buy these goods from all over uh, the world, really, as well as the US. We do telemedicine. So it seems to me that, that or at least and, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. 
in a way, there's even more trust in our market economy uh, with the internet and so on, but sort of less trust on the government side. Am, am I missing something there or what? Uh, I, what's your reaction? No, I, I, what you say is correct as far as it goes, but I would say that what you're observing is something that really isn't trust. Uh, there are some brilliant sociologist uh, team, Yamagishi and Yamagishi, uh, years ago uh, introduced the idea of assurance, saying that what many of us call trust, especially those of us who live in Western societies that are high trust societies, what many of us call trust is really not trust in the sense of Bob Frank uh, and you know his uh, discussion of golden opportunities. It's really assurance. It's, it is a product of very strong institutions. So you were talking about buying a car on the internet and stuff like that. Well, we have had an explosion of technological capability, which has allowed us to construct very good, very clever institutions with a great deal of, of monitoring capability and a great deal of credibility. And this provides a level of assurance uh, so that we're more confident to do certain things. Uh, Oliver Williamson uh, talked about this as well. And he said, well, this really isn't trust. It's it's what he would call calculative trust. So it's it's basically being able to do things in confidence that you won't be cheated or made a victim of someone's op opportunism because you understand that given the way the game is rigged, it's not in the other party's best interest to take advantage of you. But as Bob Frank pointed out in 1988 in his brilliant book, Passions Within Reason, uh, this is not what we really mean by the word trust. What we mean by the word trust is precisely the opposite. I'm in a situation where I don't know uh, what you may or may not do in the future, and I can't possibly know, but I nevertheless am willing to bet that you will not take advantage of me. Now, why would that matter? In my first book, I lay out a scheme that shows exactly why that matters. Uh, by the three levels of opportunism. And there was a, a form of it I call third degree opportunism, which involves situations where counterfactual events can't be known. Now, you might say, oh, well, Dave, that sounds all very philosophical and cloudy and I'm starting to get tired and crabby. Why, why am I listening to you? Well, let me give you an example of something for which I just said is extremely important. You've co-authored papers with people. I've co-authored papers with people. And you know that when it comes to co-authoring a paper with somebody, there is a great deal of genuine, true trust that goes beyond institutions because no one knows how a particular paper will evolve uh, from beginning to end. And the more creative the work is, the truer this is. Uh, people who are in rock bands know exactly what I'm talking about. So the more creative the activity is, if it involves other people, the more impossible it is to use institutions to completely remove the risk of a cooperative activity with someone where you might get cheated out of your just desserts after the fact. That is huge. That is the place where scientific achievement exists. That's the place where a team of engineers sit around and share ideas, confident that if their idea was the one carried today, everyone will remember that later. They won't conveniently forget when for some reason you've lost your bargaining power. How does social but capital play into that? In my view, there is a very precise way to think of social capital. 
Social capital is that part of human capital that deserves the adjective social because there's something about what's going on that produces large spillovers to other people. So if I were, if I'm a parent and I work really hard to make sure my kid is really, really good at math, and I, and I do that because I want them to become an engineer and have a good living, that's mostly human capital and the way we normally think of it. We're increasing their skills, making them more productive. That's not a bad thing for society. Everybody understands that's good for society too. But the primary reason why the parent is doing it is because they're out of concern for their kid. The problem is there are, and there are some kinds of personality traits and values uh, and even skills that don't just benefit the kid, but benefit everyone else in the society they live in. Um, and, and that, uh, David Brooks has a great way of putting it. He calls it the difference uh, between, uh, what was it, eulogy virtues uh, versus resume virtues. And the resume, resume captures the idea of it's human capital. It's good for my kids because it will help my kid uh, do well in life and have a good life and have a good family versus things that are good for the greater good. Now, to me, social capital is best thought of as the, a proper subset of human capital that involves those parts of human capital that produce tremendous spillovers and are therefore good for society. You mentioned as one of the underpinnings of having a thriving society is that we need to teach our children and ingrain in our children these moral principles. Right. Think about what capital is. Capital is stuff that is used but not used up as it is used. That's very different than, say, labor. You use labor, it's gone at the end of the day. Capital is still there. It's like a hammer. The same thing goes for constructed neural architecture. Capital requires investment. Constructed neural architecture requires investment. It requires tremendous investment. Parents have to spend a great deal of time and have to punish their children and show them. There's a whole lot that goes in to having a kid not even consider lying, not even consider cheating, not even consider saying. That's not an obvious thing to little kids. Uh, it is something that parents work very hard on. Everyone, almost everyone, I suppose, listening to this podcast is the kind of person that if they're a parent knows, they work really, really hard. They're not- the highest quality listeners. If they're not interested in convincing their children that it's not wise, to lie, cheat, and steal. They're interested in making sure their children never lie, cheat, and steal, except in crazy once-in-a-billion circumstances that are true exceptions to the rule. We all know about those exceptions to the rule. We all know about Anne Frank. We don't need to build an entire system around something that is a self-evident exception to the rule. It's okay to lie to Nazis knocking on the door that want to kill innocent people. That's a different thing. Philosophers spend way too much time trying to create systems for which there are no exceptions. But we have the word exception for a reason. Yeah. So does it concern you that uh, maybe the proportion of parents who are doing this and doing it well is declining? First of all, there's the level of work required. That's hard. It's especially hard uh, when their attention is divided by all kinds of other things. The other problem is the resume virtues are also important. Uh, you know, it, it's important that your kid learn how to play well on a baseball team. Those are good life skills. It's important that your kid learn music and violin. It's important that your kid go to a really good school. All these things are important too. All of these things take time and money and they can come at the expense 
of the eulogy virtues, as David Brooks would put it. So I think that we have shifted more in that direction over time for a variety of reasons. And I think there are other changes in our society that are making it worse. So part of it is the amount of investment, but part of it is also what you're investing in. If you teach people that morality is fundamentally shades of gray and you weigh the good against the bad, that's an utterly consequentialist moral frame to thinking about morality. And the problem with that kind of thinking is it opens the door to endless rationalizations. You can sure. rationalize almost anything if your morality doesn't have any full stops in it. This right. is worked out in great detail in my first book. Those full stops are what's required uh, in order to have people who you know you can trust just no matter what. Give me an example of a full stop. A full stop uh, in, in economic parlance would be a lexicographic ordering in the preferences, which means there are some things in morality that don't count unless other things in morality are attended to first. And what I worked out in my first book was the idea that if we treat all moral beliefs and moral values as just kind of separate specific things on a number line where the ones on the positive side are the good things like be nice, be kind, be generous. And the one on the left side of zero are the negative things like lying, cheating, and stealing. If everything's on that one dimension, then morality just comes down to how far you are from zero and how tall you are in terms of weight. And the problem with that is, is that just sets you up perfectly for saying, you know, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but look at all the good that I can do if I do this. That's, and that's a dangerous place to be because it's hard to have somebody who's unconditionally trustworthy if they are able to engage in that kind of greater good rationalization. Or greater what about good, herd mentality? That comes to mind too. Like, hey, the speed limit is 55, but I'm just trying to keep up with traffic going 75. You know what I mean? Like, That is a rationalization. That's yeah. what that is. And it works. And it, rationalizations are very powerful. They're also the mother's milk of ends justifies the means arguments. That's right. Now contr contrast that with an, a person who says, look, here's a list of moral don'ts. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Don't be an opportunistic person in the negative sense of the word. Not, I don't mean in terms of, I don't mean in terms of being enterprising. I mean, opportunistic. But taking advantage of others. Right, don't, don't be opportunistic, broadly construed. Don't ever do it, period. Never. And it's only if you're someone who never does the don'ts that we will count at the margin the positive moral merit of doing the wow. do's. So if you think that think the proportion of parents doing this hard work and instilling these moral principles in their children is potentially declining, what do we do to turn it around? In K-12 education today, we are not failing to teach morality. That's not the problem. We have... Uh, ample amounts of character and moral education at the K through 12 level, which is inculcated in virtually all public schools and virtually all private schools now. The problem is if you look at this stuff and listen to what these people are actually saying, it is all utterly consequentialist and quite at Explain war. that. What do you mean by consequentialist? In other words, what makes, what determines the moral propriety of a policy or a decision or an action is whatever whatever outcomes it produces. Okay. There aren't things that are just wrong, inherently wrong in and of themselves. Okay. So uh, 
we are working very, very hard to teach our children morality at a very, very young age and drumming it in and drumming it in with a great deal of resources and time that is inconsistent with what I call the moral foundation of economic behavior and free market democracies. A little bit is more it, on that. What are the moral, like, what, how would you describe the moral foundations of economic behavior? Well, that's, democracy? I mean, that's an entire, that's an entire book, okay. <laughs> that one right there. Um, People want to know. I mean, like, like, how do you separate that out? I also wonder, oh, if, I, is there a paradox well, that right now maybe, maybe there is some uh, moral decline or, you know, we're not doing the work we need to do, but the economy for some people, for investors, the economy is not in bad shape. You know, most people are not investors, but for the investors, the economy seems to be doing all right. So what, what's, how do you explain that? Well, first of all, uh, correct me as, as I'm wrong. Well, it depends on what you mean by the economy is doing okay. As I said, um, like for investors, the stock market itself. Well, the stock market performance and the performance of the economy as it relates to normal people in their daily lives mm -hmm. and uh, how much wealth they have, how much income they have. And uh, I'm sure Mike will back me up on this as well. It's not just that. It's also the certainty equivalent value of that. I mean, you can have a lot of wealth uh, saved up and even the real value of it can be pretty high, but if it's subject to wild swings mm -hmm. in capital asset value, that's not worth as much as, say, $2 less wealth and much more stability. So right. uh, the, uh, the economy's performance as when we are thinking about the common good or we're thinking about mass human flourishing in the sense of Edmund Phelps, uh, that is a different thing than the stock market. The stock market is related to that, but they are by no means one-to-one -one correspondent. Well, one thing that Mike and I have talked about a lot, and I'm guessing, Mike, this is why you liked the op-ed or one of the reasons, is that there is a prevailing opinion right now that to solve poverty, the government needs to step in and um, redistribute wealth, and that will solve poverty versus free market policies solving poverty. And you mentioned this, like going back Right along, you, you can speak to this better than I can, Mike, but if we really want to bring people out of poverty, then we need um, a free market society. And that has been what has brought people out of poverty historically. But why do you think now there's this prevailing opinion that government policies are what are going to bring people out of poverty? You know, Bernie Sanders, like the so socialist approach to things why do you think uh, that's so appealing to people i don't want to call out any generations but why is that appealing to people now do you think mike jump in uh, i i want to hear uh david on this <laughs> <laughs> well, i know you have thoughts you, though i, I, I know you have thoughts first of all i i do agree with your premise that an awful lot of social problems. I don't agree that if we have a problem and it is a social problem, that therefore equals a government problem. I think that's a non sequitur. There are problems that are fundamentally social problems that it requires an us and a we to solve them. But that doesn't necessarily mean we need to use the power of government to do it. We used to solve an awful lot of problems uh, in the private sector through the church in particular, uh, I remember this, uh, even as a little kid, it was much more evident uh, in St. Louis through the Catholic Church. And the further back in time you go, the more you see fraternal organizations in addition to the church doing these sorts of things. So social doesn't equal government uh, and solution doesn't always equal power. 
That I agree with totally. I also believe that there is a role for government to deal with some of these issues. But if you don't have the right framework coming into it, you can go too far with it. Now, what do I mean by that? We lose trust in each other when the stakes and elections get too high because we move beyond government addressing market failure problems. We mm -hmm. start picking winners, even if even if you're even if you have good intentions involved, you're still picking winners. That's when things start to go awry. One possible market failure problem, and I, I believe it to, to some extent a market failure problem, is providing a safety net for people. Uh, so that if things go terrible in their lives, they don't suffer unduly. Uh, at Hayek's 100th birthday party, uh, I, uh, I actually went to his 100. He didn't live to 100, but we had a, there was a 100 birthday party that they had in Germany, and I was lucky enough to be invited. Friedrich Hayek, uh, yep. Uh, to it. And it was just a, a very small group uh, in Bleibach, Germany. And uh, I, one of the guys there who I'd never met, but I always admired him tremendously, and his name was Ulrich Witt. And he's a brilliant economic uh, theoretician, uh, mostly game theory and so on. And we were talking about something, and he said, you know, David, uh, he had a very thick German accent, which I will not give you an impression of, but he <laughs> says, you know, David, your problem is you don't understand that like in, in, in Europe, we have a different view of things. Americans just think about things differently. You know, we, you, you, we don't mind. You think that we, we're just socialists. We don't mind if people get rich. We just, uh, you only so rich. And I said, oh, that is so funny. I said, especially for a German. And he says, well, what do you mean? And I said, you know, Ulrich, in the United States, we got the same kind of thing. We'll let you be poor, but only so poor. <laughs> that's true so we'll let we'll let you fall but at some point we'll say okay that's enough that's a that's enough or not he totally missed my point <laughs> the point is what matters most knowing that you can be as rich as everybody else or knowing you will never miss a meal knowing that nobody's going to have a 14 foot bass boat when you only have a 12 foot bass boat are never having to sleep out in the rain. Mm -hmm. The further back towards living or dying you get, the more these things matter. And I do believe there are certain kinds of things for which the government is probably more efficient at making sure you have a basic safety net. Ronald Reagan believed in a safety net. Mm -hmm. Milton Friedman believed in a safety net. Mm -hmm. Friedrich Hayek believed in a safety net. Franklin Delano Roosevelt believed in a safety net. So safety nets are <laughs> safety nets are not a hard sell because right. it's obvious that uh, the alleviation of misery is of indisputable moral merit. Sure, it just is. Now, is that what's going on right now with Bernie Sanders? No. The big problem that we've made, and I believe this is the biggest mistake of the 20th century, okay. is we have conflated the indisputable moral merit of a social safety net that alleviates suffering with social justice theory. Mm -hmm. Trying to work towards a world where we have strong equality in all the outcomes is very, very different. It's a very different motivation. It's a very different premise. And it is a, involves very different policies 
than trying to live in a world where, you know, we'll let you fall, but only so fall. Right, right, right. There are a few things that are more disgusting in the United States today than the squandering of the opportunity to increase the human capital of the poorest of the poor. There, there's a lot of things we can't do much about, but we can have a school where a really poor kid can go and just get an excellent education. This is doable. This is not an asteroid coming at the earth. This can be done. And it is being are, done. Yeah. It is being places. done in some places, but it's not being done everywhere. And it That's should right. be, it should just be, we're just, we're so rich. There's no reason why we can't do it, okay. but we can't because the game has been rigged because of other agendas. And I think that that, but that's one of those things. We need to make sure everybody gets enough food to eat, enough right. clean water to drink, a dry and warm place to sleep, clothes to wear. They break a bone, it gets fixed, and yeah. they learn how to read, and they learn, and they get a basic education so that they can understand the world around them and, and find a way forward to thrive. Sure. So this has been fascinating and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do want to give you a moment to prognosticate. Where do you think we're going with um, culture and to, you know, given how much it matters, where do you think we're headed? It's 2021. Where are we in 2030? Do you think? Mark Reardon likes to ask me questions like this all the time. And I always <laughs> say, you know, Mark, I, I really like being right. And one way to be right is to not make predictions because but when you we make need predictions, smart people like you <laughs> to interpret the world for us and, and show us where we're headed. So whenever society moves into something that's somewhat novel mm -hmm. and what we're in right now is not completely novel. We've had tremendous political anger and division in our country in the past. Sure. So it's not like it's completely novel. But I would argue that in one way, it is truly novel. In the past, we've had very, very deep divisions, very nasty uh, stuff going on between groups. But every one of those has involved issues that I thought were worthy of it. Abolition. Yeah, sure. Slavery. That, yeah. That's that, something that, that, worth, that bubbles up. That's yeah. worth having an argument about. That's worth yeah. fighting over. The people that are losing all the money from the slave, they're going to fight. And the people sure. who think it's wrong, they're going to fight. Yeah. Okay? So we've had it over something like that. We had it within our communities over the Revolutionary War. A lot of Americans didn't fight in the Revolutionary War. They yeah. sat it out. Now, I'm sure there were some real hard feelings. We don't know as much about it because the press wasn't as well developed as it was later in the Civil War. But that had to have gone on. Civil rights, maybe. Vietnam, civil rights. Yeah, I, the, civil, the, the civil rights movement. And, and in fact, in an earlier op-ed, I bring up those two. Uh, hey, you know, you're sending kids maybe to die over realpolitik. I mean, this is my kid or the kid that right. lives down there. I mean, those are, that's rancor that is understandable given the stakes. But the situation we're in right now is not the result of a specific threat or event or issue. It's the result of a long-term process and what has been changing in the long-term that has given us, bring it, brought us to this tipping point. It is going from virtually no money being spent on anything but genuine public goods. In other words, only on solving market value problems to ever larger amounts of money 
being funneled through the federal and state governments to being used to advance various types of social agendas. Every single one of those agendas could be something that we all personally endorse, that we all think are good things, and that we all think that if I were rich, I would give a lot of money. But that is not the problem. The problem is we don't all agree on all those things. So it's important for us to get our money our way mm -hmm. and not to have the power of government compel us to get our money your way. Yep. What often people on the left will, will say to me, well, don't you think we should do this? Don't you think we do that? Don't you care? And, I, and, I, and my point is, it's not that I don't care about that. It's just my question. Your question to me is, why is it that I don't want to do these nice things for people? My question to you is, why do you think you have the right to force me to do this versus that. And when you're taking positive moral action, you're taking action. If you're taking action that requires resources, you will be making choices. Mm -hmm. What comes to mind for me, I did a podcast with Neil McCluskey of the Cato Institute is uh, student loan forgiveness. So we're going to pick a group that would be college goers, most likely graduates that have loans that they can't afford to repay. And that's just a very particular group. And it's a pretty small group. It's about 30 no, not even, probably 25% of people have student loan debt. And we're going to prioritize them over the other 75%. And it's the group of people who are most likely to earn more than the other 75%. So to me, that's a very counterintuitive approach to picking winners and losers and like forgiving student loan debt, but not car loan debt or, you know, credit debt or whatever other kind of debt. I think that's a, a failed approach. And so to me, that's an example of picking a winner, you know, like we're going to promote the welfare of this group of people and somewhat at the expense, someone's got to pay for it. So we'll all be paying for this group to get their loans forget, forgiven. Um, I do see that as being, I don't know if it's a slippery slope, but I, I just see it as um, a policy that will create more rancor with the groups are, who are already angry, but It'll create more rancor and the marginal effect versus the total effect issue oh, yeah. is the, the central argument of one of the most important books ever written in political economy, uh, The Logic of Collective Action by Mansur. Sure. Uh, you, you, you end up with this grand fallacy of composition problem, which is yeah. the promotion of, of individual small special interest groups that at the margin that works fine because the amount that they're taking out of the total produces sure. almost no marginal, observably marginal effect. But if you add that up, you end up with bankruptcy. And I worked this out in, in great detail. Uh, I, I don't remember if it's the first or second book. Right. Um, I think, uh, I think the, your audience needs to just run out and buy both books. I think that's right. So number two, anyway, is why culture matters most. I like the most on the end of that. That's yeah. very um, important to it. And the title of your first book? Um, is The Moral Foundation of Economic Behavior. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for both of you for joining me on this podcast. It's been very enlightening to me. And I, I do really think that people are, I think people are in two groups of people I know are in two groups right now. They're either avoiding the news at all costs and just trying to stay off social media and we'll see none of it or they're doom scrolling. And I think both groups need something more objective and rational to sort of explain what's going on. So I appreciate your point of view. Uh, it, it's highly informed point of view. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Well, I thank you for the opportunity uh, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.